great to see a Purpose Church. Uh, just good to be together on this uh, clock change weekend, the bad clock change, the one where you lose an hour in the morning, but oh, it's going to be fun tonight to have that extra hour and from now on. Now, before we get into our study, I just want to take a moment to thank you for your generosity for our earthquake relief in Turkey and Syria. I'm just overwhelmed by by your, your response. Uh, between our regular giving to our missionaries and partners uh, in those countries of, of Syria and Turkey um, this year, which is about $70,000, and you're over and above giving following the earthquake last month, which was about $30,000. Pastor Shambram Barin uh, gave me a report on this. He's our global impact pastor, and he told me that our church is now going to send over $100,000 in the name of Jesus uh, to those countries, uh, that part of the world, that region, and it's going to help so many people, and so I'm so grateful. Here are some pictures of the people that you are helping right now on the other side of the, of the world. Uh, we are actively procuring and coordinating aid to Syria, including food, water, hygiene packs, blankets, heaters, and heating fuel and other needed supplies. Now, please be in prayer for them because the politics and ongoing civil war in Syria uh, makes this a very challenging task. Uh, we're building tiny two-room houses in Turkey to accommodate families along with toilets and other sanitary supplies. And these homes are going to be used for the long term, uh, for the long term until rebuilding uh, takes place. We're also helping a church in, in Turkey that's like a sister church uh, to ours there uh, to house 80 families and inviting them to listen as they conduct their regular church services. Uh, through our partner uh, in that region, Sat7 Turkey, uh, Christian satellite programming provides counsel to children and families every day. Uh, one program counsels family on helping children deal with the trauma of losing their homes and their family members and schools. And another program advises on how human traffickers will use these times to prey on children and young adults and teaching them how they can prevent this from happening. Another program provides gospel messages of hope to a hurting community. And all this is done by Christ followers in the region through Purpose Church support as a witness to the grace and mercy of God and Jesus in these majority Muslim communities. So as your pastor, I just want to say thank you so much because as we say so many times here at Purpose Church, per generous people do change the world. Now today we're continuing our 2023 series in which we cover the 66 books of the Bible in 52 weeks. And the title of our series is Jesus on Every Page. Now the title for the section of the Bible that we're currently in, which is the Old Testament historical books, is called No Perfect People Allowed. And we've met some very imperfect people in this part of God's Word, haven't we? But not today. Not today. And I'm not saying that Ezra was perfect because he was a human. But he is one of the few people in the Bible who has nothing negative recorded about him in Scripture. Now that's true of some that have a verse or two about him. 
But this is a guy that had a whole book about him and, and much of the next book, Nehemiah as well. And yet we don't have a single negative thing recorded about him in Scripture. And that just makes him a great picture or foreshadowing of Jesus, even though we hardly ever talk about him. Uh, Nehemiah, who we're going to look at next Sunday, he like gets all the attention <laughs> because Nehemiah is considered one of the best books on leadership ever written. So we talk a lot about Nehemiah. I've probably preached on the rebuilding of the walls, um, man, a dozen times or so. We use it as a theme for one of our building campaigns. I've probably done one or two series uh, through the years on the book of Nehemiah. So he, he gets all the attention uh, Nehemiah does. But Ezra is a fantastic leader himself, just one that we don't talk about that much, but we're going to change that uh, today. The title for today's study is Ezra, Jesus, the priest who is greater than Ezra. I, I got this timeline from Pastor Eric that has really been helpful. I have to admit, this simple timeline that Pastor Eric uh, put, put together um, for this section uh, has, has just kind of clarified some things for me, and I finally kind of put some things together uh, about what was going on here, about these three waves of exiles from Babylon that came in three different times back to the nation of Israel. Uh, 931 B.C., as a result of King Solomon's failure to keep God's commands, Israel splits into the northern kingdom, ten tribes, and the southern kingdoms, two tribes, that's Judah and Benjamin, and where uh, Jerusalem was. 722 B.C., northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians and they were taken into exile. 586 B.C., southern kingdom fell to the Babylonians, and they were carried into exile in 2 Kings 24 and 25. 538 B.C., this is the first of the three waves of exiles back from Babylon to Israel. Zerubbabel is the first to lead a large group of Israelites back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, and we see this in Ezra chapters 1 uh, through, through 6. And then 458 B.C., almost 80 years later, Ezra arrives in Jerusalem to teach the Torah, the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and rebuild the community. And you see this in Ezra chapters 7 through 10. Then 444 B.C., this is what we'll look at next Sunday with the book of Nehemiah, Almost 14 years after Ezra returned to Jerusalem, Nehemiah arrives and leads the people to finish rebuilding Jerusalem's walls in Nehemiah chapters 1 through 7. Now, Stephanie Solberg uh, found this really helpful, uh, four ways that Ezra foreshadowed Jesus. Number one, he sought the Word of God and obeyed it like Jesus. He was a priest like Christ, who is our great high priest. Ezra was a great spiritual reformer who called Israel to repentance, just like Jesus did. And number four, both Ezra and Jesus wept over uh, Jerusalem. So those are the four ways that um, Ezra is kind of a foreshadowing or a picture B.C. in 500 B.C. of Jesus who would come five, six centuries uh, later. Now, we want to spend the remainder of our time looking at eight practical lessons from the book of Ezra, uh, eight things that we can apply uh, to our lives uh, today uh, from what we see 
in the pages of the book of Ezra. Uh, practical lesson number one. God orchestrates even non-believers for his purposes. God orchestrates even non-believers for, for his purposes. Now, God used the Assyrians and Babylonians to punish the nation of Israel for turning their back on him and worshiping idols according to prophecy. They were warned by the prophets that if they turned their back on God, started worshiping other idols like Moloch, who we talked about last Sunday, you worship him by sacrificing babies. Like uh, the other uh, goddesses, Ashtoreth, who you worship through sexual immorality and orgies. So these, these gods of orgies and, and child sacrifice, uh, God warned them through the prophets. You turn your back on me and start worshiping them, I'm going to bring in other nations. And so God uses the Assyrians and Babylonians, even though they were not followers of God, they were non-believers, he uses them to punish uh, Israel. Then God raises up Cyrus the Great, we talked to him about him last Sunday, the king of Persia, to defeat the Babylonians who had already defeated the Assyrians, but now the Persians are in charge. And then he allows the Jewish people to go back to Israel Again, according to prophecy. We pick it up with Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, what is today the nation of Iran, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus. Cyrus is not a believer, but he's still a tool in God's hands to accomplish God's purposes. King of Persia, to make a proclamation through his realm, and also to put it into writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem and Judah. Hold it there for a second. God uses this non-believing king who still has some kind of recognition that there's somebody bigger in charge than him that God is the one that's ultimately given the kingdom, kingdoms, and he senses that God has appointed him to build a temple for him at Jerusalem and Judah, this, this non-believer. Going on to verse 3, uh, any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God, see he doesn't even consider uh, Jehovah, Yahweh, his God, but he's talking about their God, but he's still being used by God. That there may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them. Now notice this, a non-believing king is instructing, ordering non-believers to supply financially for the temple in Jerusalem to be restored. The people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved. Now God is moving the hearts of those that do follow him, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in, in Jerusalem. Uh, now, you don't have to panic. We see this principle in God's word that he's even using these, these non-believing leaders for his purposes. And so this means that you don't have to panic when other people seem to have control of your life. Do you ever, do you ever feel that fear 
when somebody else is in control of your life, like a boss or a government official or anyone. You don't have to be afraid of that because God controls them. You may feel that part of your life is under their control, but they are under the control of God. And God even uses them for his purposes, just like he uses followers of Jesus. Um, Let me give a few examples. For example, we had a fantastic 22-year run here at Purpose Church, 22 straight years, uh, didn't miss a year, 22 straight years of having Easter uh, at the Los Angeles Fairgrounds um, right near us here in, in Pomona, uh, Easter at Fairplex, we called it. And so for 22 straight years, we had these uh, uh, fabulous community-wide, Southern California-wide uh, Easter services at uh, the LA Fairgrounds from 1998 to 2019. And we never got rained out even once in those 22 years. But then the pandemic regulations came. And then the L.A. County Fair moved from September to May. And so we had to come move Easter back to our campus. And so this was, we felt somewhat out of our control. Uh, and yet God was controlling those that were in control of, of us. And God used it for good purposes. Uh, we've realized over the past couple of years that we get to expose new people when they come here on Easter to some of our strengths, uh, like our children's ministry and our student ministries. And and we found out that when visitors uh, come to Easter on our own campus, they are far more likely to return and become a part of our church family. And on top of all that, it started raining on Easter Sundays. (laughs) So it's crazy how God held the rain back for 22 years. As soon as we're back here in our worship center, undercover, the rain starts up. Uh, Once again, we'll see what happens this year. I love this verse. Uh, Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart, and not just the king, this could be the boss's heart, or the government official's heart, or the president's heart, or the governor's heart, is like a stream of water directed by the Lord. He, God, not the king, but the Lord, guides it wherever he pleases. Uh, I like the version of this verse uh, that I heard from um, Luis Palau. Here's a picture of him, uh, the great evangelist from Argentina. Uh, He was called the Billy Graham of Latin America. And here he is, Luis Palau, uh, the Billy Graham of South America or Latin America next to Billy Graham. Uh, These two men were tremendously uh, used by God. Both are in heaven now. But I heard Luis Palau uh, speak at a chapel service when I was at Wheaton College. And I'll never forget the message. It was one of the most powerful messages I've ever heard. And, And the reason I remember it is he took that verse But he did it in the King James Version, and he did it with hand motions. He said, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. Like rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wills. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. Like rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wills. And I'll never forget that. And then he went through story after story as to how God had supernaturally Use government officials in South America to advance uh, the gospel. Another example, St. Patrick's Day is Friday. 
And Patrick was born in Britain around uh, 400 AD, but he was captured by Irish pirates, Irish pirates, when he was 16 years old and sold into slavery in Ireland. Uh, while he's in captivity, he commits his life to Christ. He escaped back to Britain when he was 22 years old, but went back to Ireland later on as a missionary. So God used all of this. God used Irish pirates to reach the nation of Ireland for Christ. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. Like rivers of water, he turns it wherever he, he wills. Uh, here's another one of my favorite examples. Uh, during World War II, Adolf Hitler ordered the building of a 100,000-watt radio transmitter in Monte Carlo, Monaco, for the purpose of broadcasting Nazi propaganda throughout the world. But today, that same transmitter is used by Transworld Radio to broadcast the gospel in numerous languages to millions of people all around the world, including Europe, Africa, and the Middle East, and its signal has now been boosted to one million watts. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. Like rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wills. Don't panic, follower of Jesus. It may seem that others are in control of your destiny, but God is in control of their destiny, and their hearts are in the hands of the Lord, and he will move them for his ultimate purposes in your life and throughout uh, the world. And then a second practical application is don't look down on something God is doing in your life because it is not as impressive as something he formerly did. What God is doing in your life right now is unique for each season of your life. And be careful about comparing that. You shouldn't compare yourself to other people. But you also shouldn't compare what's going on in your life now compared to what God did in the past. Don't be discouraged because your current situation doesn't seem as impressive as the good old days for a couple of reasons. First of all, the good old days aren't as good as you remember them. You tend to remember the good and forget about the bad. And even if they were as good as you remember them, that was God's plan for that season of your life. And he has a different purpose for the current season of your life. We see this in Ezra chapter 3, verse 10. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love toward Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord, the temple, the foundation had been laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid while many others shouted for joy. Now there is a chance that they were weeping out of nostalgia uh, for uh, the Solomon's temple. But uh, most Bible scholars believe they were weeping 
because it didn't compare. The current temple was so small and insignificant compared to Solomon's temple. In verse 13, it says, No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping, because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. So the younger generation who had never seen a temple, they loved this new temple. This is awesome. But the older generation was discouraged because it wasn't as fantastic as the Temple of Solomon that they remembered. But Solomon's temple was used by God during a previous time, and this temple would be used by God for this time. And both temples had, had their purposes, uh, different size and scope, different impressiveness for different chapters of Israel's life, but but still both of them used. And God sent a couple of prophets during this time, Haggai and Zechariah. We won't study them until this summer, but they prophesied during these events. And, and God sent these prophets to remind them of this. Haggai chapter 2, verse 3. Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? That is, all of you who remember Solomon's temple, raise your hand. How does it look to you now? Wah, wah. Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, Zerubbabel declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. And work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. And my spirit remains among you do not fear. Just because God is working in your life now differently than he did before, his spirit remains with you through each of the chapters of your life. Do not fear. God is still working his purposes in your life, even though it may be different than he did before. Uh, another prophet uh, uh, challenged the people. Zechariah chapter 4 Verse 8, then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Who dares despise the day of small things? Oh, that's strong. That's strong, isn't it? God says, who dares uh, despise the day of small things? Since the seven eyes of the Lord that range throughout the earth will rejoice when they see the chosen capstone in the hand of Zerubbabel. Don't despise the day of small things. Uh, you will never know until you get to heaven how God has used small things for his eternal purposes. Take yourself seriously. You say, oh, Glenn, we're supposed to be humble as Christians, not take ourselves too seriously. No. Uh, maybe don't take ourselves seriously, but take the work of God in and through you, his purposes in and through you, take them very seriously. You say, oh, well, I'm just preparing for a group of four-year-olds, Sunday school class uh, this morning. I'm just going to listen to Bible verses for Awana on Wednesday night. I'm just going to be a greeter to people showing up here on Sunday morning. Now, you know, I, that's not very important. If I was preparing to speak to a huge stadium of people in Buenos Aires, like, uh, like Luis Palau, oh, I'd prepare for that. That's important. If I was speaking to a Yankee stadium filled with people like Billy Graham, oh, that's important. No, no. 
It is just as important. Don't despise the day of small things. Take yourself seriously. This Easter, uh, who knows how God will use that lawn sign you put into your yard. Who knows how God will use that bumper sticker. Who knows how God will use that invitation to a friend. They come with you on Easter Sunday, and who knows what God is going to do in their life don't despise the day, the day of small things. It is the little acts of obedience that God uses for great purposes. And then number three, opposition comes when you get serious about God's purpose for your life. Ezra chapter 4, when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, let us help you build, because like you, we seek your God. No, they didn't. They were trying to get in there to sabotage what was going on. And have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, you have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. At the beginning of the reign of Xerxes, they lodged an accusation against the people of Judah and Jerusalem. Okay, so, uh, so opposition is going to come when you get serious about fulfilling God's plan and purpose for your life. Thus, the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. But here's the good news, number four. But God will help you persevere through this opposition. There will come opposition. There will come discouragement. But you persevere through it. And so the work comes to a standstill until they can uh, go back to Babylon, go, go to, back to Persia, and to check the records to see did indeed the command come um, from Cyrus to rebuild this temple. And so now we come to chapter 5, uh, 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 verses uh, 1 through 5. Now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem. So God raises up these two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, in the name of the Lord of God of Israel, who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, son of Josedach, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. At that time, Tetanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shethar, Bozani, and their associates went to them and asked, who authorized you to rebuild this temple and to finish it? They also ask, what are the names? You know, that's always intimidating, isn't it? When you're working and, and uh, somebody doesn't like what you're doing for them at work, uh, maybe you're a salesperson, and somebody says, what's your name? What's your name? That's, that's always scary, isn't it? Because you're fearful that they're going to take your name and, and speak to somebody higher than you in the organization, and you might get in trouble. So they try to intimidate it and to say, what are the names of those who are constructing this building? But the eye of their God 
was watching over the elders of the Jews, and they were not stopped until a report could go to Darius and his written reply received. We see that now in chapter 6, verse 1. King Darius then issued an order, and they searched in the archive stored in the treasury at Babylon, skipping down to verse 13. Then because of the decree King Darius had sent, because they did indeed find that command from Cyrus when they went into the archives. Tatanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shethar, Bozadai, and their associates carried it out with diligence. So the elders of the Jews continued to build and prosper under the preaching of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah, a descendant of Idu. They finished building the temple according to the command of the God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, kings of Persia. See that principle again? How it's God behind the scenes orchestrating the decrees of these non-believers, Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, the, the, hand, the heart of the king, of these three kings, is in the hand of the Lord. Like rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wills. God helped them, and Haggai and Zechariah encouraged them. Well, let me ask you a question. Who has been a Haggai or a Zechariah to you at a pivotal time in your life? These two men were used by God to encourage the nation of Israel to persevere through the opposition. Uh, who has God used in your life? Who's been your Haggai and Zechariah? And then let me ask you a question. Who will you be a Haggai or a Zechariah to this week? God, it's not going to He's, he's gonna, not going to have this be in vain, this study in God's Word. He's going to use it for His purposes. And I believe you're going to encounter somebody this week who you need to encourage. A person who's discouraged by the opposition within their lives. And you are going to be a Haggai and a, or a Zechariah to that person and encourage them to persevere. And then number five, study, obey, and share God's Word. Here's the verse that summarizes the life of Ezra, and by the grace of God, will it, will it kind of encapsulate who we are as well as a church and as individual followers of Jesus. I love this verse. Ezra 7 verse 10. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance, that is the obedience, of the law of the Lord and to teaching, that is sharing God's Word, its decrees and laws in Israel. You know, preaching like I'm doing right now, that's just the tip of the iceberg. All followers of Jesus can share God's word. You don't have to be a pastor, you don't have to be a preacher. Everybody shares God's word. Who will you share God's word with this week? Now, it seems natural to share it like to our children, our grandchildren, um, maybe to teach a class at a church or be a part of a Bible study. But how can we take God's word to the street? How can we take it out, salt out of the salt shaker? You say, well, Glenn, that's weird. That's weird. What do you want us to walk up to somebody in the street and say, thus saith the Lord, and quote scripture to them? Uh, I know how that is. If I want people to leave me alone so that I can read on an airplane, I just mention that I'm a pastor at the beginning of the trip, and it's almost like putting a do not disturb sign 
right around my neck. They, they will leave me alone. I'm not talking about that, anything weird. But what if we just share God's word as, as naturally as we share an article that we read or a meme or a quote um, and just share naturally with our believing friends as well as our non-believing friends. You know, there's this scripture I read that really helped me of something I'm going through in my life right now. Now, Satan tells us that this is too weird, but maybe it would demonstrate to our friends, even our non-Christian friends, just how relevant God's word is to everyday life. And then number six, God is our ultimate protection in life. You know, there's so much to be afraid of today. It almost seems like the role of media is to tell us what thing we should be afraid of on any given day. Every day I open my phone, there is something new to be afraid of. Uh, Ezra gathers the people next to the Ahava Canal, which was a river in Babylon before their trip uh, back to Israel. And it says in chapter 8, verse 21, there by the Ahava Canal, I proclaimed a fast so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us and our children with all of our possessions. I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from the enemy on the road because we had told the king the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him. But his great anger is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and petitioned our God about this, and he answered our prayers. Now don't get me wrong. There's a time to worry. There's a time to be afraid. But it is a poor witness to non-believers when Christians are sometimes the most afraid of anyone of global events and everyday fears. Sometimes it's the Christians, it's us that are the most freaked out by what's going on in the world. There's no need for that. There's no need for that. Henry Martin, who was a missionary to India and Iran, he said, I am immortal until God's work for me is done. Satan can't touch you until God's purposes in your life are fulfilled, and then after that, you go to heaven for eternity. In Isaiah 41, verse 10, uh, God said, Fear thou not, for I am with thee, and be not dismayed, because I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. We do not need to be afraid of these things that surround us in the world. God is our ultimate protection. And then number seven, what are the issues that make you angry? It's a good challenge from the book of Ezra. Winston Churchill once said, a man is about as big as the things that make him angry. Do we get angry when we get cut off in traffic or when we feel disrespected in some way? Small things? Or do we get angry when we hear that a child dies from hunger every 10 seconds in the world, or that a baby is aborted every 35 seconds just in the United States alone? What's the size of what makes us angry? Ezra got angry when the people began to sin 
in the same way that got them exiled from Israel in the first place. Ezra 9 verse 3, when I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat down appalled. Now there are two types of people. Some turn their anger inward, like Ezra, and then there are the others. <laughs> Nehemiah had a similar reaction, but he took it out on other people. Nehemiah 13 verse 25, I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. What is this with pulling out people's hair? I don't want anybody pulling out my hair. And I'm certainly not going to pull out my hair. Just don't have that much of it. Jesus got angry when people failed to have compassion on other people. Mark 3 verse 5, he looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. But here's the good news for all of us. Number eight, confession restores our relationship with God. Ezra 10 verse 1, while Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children, gathered around him, and they too wept bitterly. And I want to give you a chance to do that right now. Confession, repentance, uh, begins a relationship with God or restores us to a relationship with God. Would you pray with me just three words? Sorry, thank you, and please. Pray with me wherever you are. God, I'm sorry, like Ezra, um, like Israel, the people that gathered around him in this story. I'm sorry for the sin and wrongdoing in my life. But thank you that because of Jesus and his death on the cross, I can be forgiven. Now please come into my life. Have mercy on me. Be my Savior. Forgive me. Have mercy on me. I pray for, I, I thank you for your grace and I pray that you will be my Savior. Please be my Savior. Please be my leader, my King, and my Lord. Sorry, thank you, please. And I pray this in Jesus' name. And wherever you are, would you say out loud with me, out loud together, amen and amen. <laughs> For our closing video, I wanted to show you, uh, I just thought you'd be thrilled by this as I was. It's a compilation of Pastor Eric uh, in the past month uh, preaching to students just in the past few weeks from Southern California to Northern California to Massachusetts uh, to a total of 2,000 students with 400 of them making decisions for Jesus Christ. So let's close by watching this. Jesus died on a cross because Jesus was perfect and sinless. He was 100% God, 100% human. He was the only one qualified to take our sin. But because God's word can be trusted and because God loves you, he makes it crystal clear in scripture that sin is death. That sin is like a prison. And Jesus did for you what nobody else could do. 
Jesus was uniquely qualified because he was completely sinless. He was perfect. That only he could absorb the sin of the world. That Jesus literally prioritized your life over his own. That Jesus held nothing back to win you back. Why? Because he loves you. I were running away from God, when we were enemies of God, he came running towards us. You know that sin and Satan that's too powerful for you, that's too big for you? It's finished having its hold on you. Sin being the final sentence of your life, it's finished. Sin winning is finished. Death reigning is finished. Sin having a hold on your life, it's finished. Satan winning the war of your life, it's finished. The power of death and sin to distance us from God, it's been paid for, it's been finished. That when Jesus said, it is finished, he was proclaiming, you are forgiven through his name.